Hi everyone, welcome back to Impressionable with me, Becky Lee. This is the podcast which tries to figure out all the ways in which we've been influenced by the world and talks about the legacies we'd like to leave behind. This week I am joined by the amazing Jane Mattingly. Jane is a passionate advocate for eating disorder recovery, body acceptance and disability issues. She's the founder of the AND Initiative, a non-profit destigmatizing mobility aids, as well as a podcast host and also the author of the upcoming book, This is Body Grief. Jane is really inspiring and she has such a powerful journey. I love this episode. It gets a little explicit at times, but honestly, it's great and I learned so much from Jane. I hope you enjoy this conversation. As always, please continue to rate the podcast five stars, share it with your friends, share it with anyone that you might think will find this episode funny or insightful. And yeah, I will see you next time. Bye. Hi everyone and welcome back to Impressionable. This week I'm joined by the amazing Jay Mattingly. Hello, I'm so happy to be here. How are you doing? I'm good, how are you? Thanks for having me. I'm good, thanks. Yeah, we were just discussing the weather in the UK uh, and how none of us have AC, so we're doing our best. I know, oh my gosh, I'm sending all the cooling vibes to you. You look very cool right now. Oh. The setup. Nice, breezy breezy clothes that I have on (laughs) yeah you need to send one my way um but for those that don't know you could you give a little intro into who you are and what you get up to of course yes I'm Jane Mattingly um I have my master's in clinical mental health counseling and I dedicated my life for a while to working with eating disorders and body image through my business recovery living care I used to train and I still do Um, train individuals working with eating disorders and body image. Um, I still work with Eating Recovery Center, um, ERC, but really where my time is dedicated now is with this work with Body Grief, Body Grief with Jane Mattingly. Um, I'm currently writing a book, This is Body Grief, um, backed and published by Penguin Random House. Um, It's really just my soul and everything that I'm putting into this. Um, And... um, It's a term that I have just really identified with for years and years and years. Um, I have lived with chronic illness for five years now, which is just kind of wild to think about, um, and have been disabled and progressively become more and more disabled throughout the years. I used to be able-bodied and considered quote-unquote healthy up until five years ago, and now I'm a wheelchair user and rely on my mobility aids and my mobility service dog, Weedy, who I swear is so much more popular than me on my social media channels. Um, he's my black lab, who is just amazing. Um, but I talk he's about- He's so cute. He really is. He is <laughs> I know I'm biased, but he is so freaking adorable. Um <laughs> But yeah, I talk about body grief and disability advocacy and chronic illness advocacy. I have a nonprofit 501c3 here in the States called the AND Initiative, where we advocate um, for people with chronic illnesses and physical disabilities through, um, you know, having them find independence and freedom by advocacy and gifting mobility aids. And I also am launching um, the podcast Body Grief with Jane Mattingly this summer, where we're going to be just sharing amazing stories with people that will be through the AND initiative as well, where we'll be sharing body grief stories and interviewing people of all walks of life. And so 
that's really kind of where my journey lies right now, turning my problems into my purpose. Wow. I mean, it all sounds amazing and I'm super excited to get into it, but I have to ask you the question I ask everyone, which is what's something that's made an impression on you recently? Yeah. You, when you ask, when you ask people that question and I read that question, it's God, it's so, such a wild question for me because I feel like every single moment these days has made an impression on me. Honestly, since I became sick, I've really had to shift my way of thinking and my way of life um, to change that, um, where I used to just be go, 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 and I used to kind of take life for mm-hmm. granted. I used to take my body for granted. I used to take really everything for granted. Um, and I think that is really kind of the way of life these days. Um, but my dear friend, Marka, if anyone watches the show Ted Lasso on um, Apple TV. I don't know if anyone watches that show, but she is the Rebecca to my <laughs> Keely. She, um, is, uh, just amazing. She's my mentor. She's my friend. I love her. Um, she is going to also be a case study in my book. And she said that we are entitled to, we aren't entitled to shit. We are born bare ass naked with nothing but um, the skin on our bodies. And I really appreciated that perspective because it really brings down to the point of sometimes we think with our body grief, like, why is this happening to me? I should be feeling better. I'm entitled to more. Um, And yeah, Like there is that grief of like, yeah, I do deserve more. And we aren't entitled to much more than what we're given. And sometimes genetic inheritance and all of those things, it's like, we're not entitled to shit. Our bodies are our bodies and we got to take care of what we're given. And that really, she told me that when I was interviewing her about two months ago and it sat with me every single day since. Mm, definitely it's given me a lot to think about already and does that kind of encapsulate what body grief means like what what do you mean when you talk about body grief honestly when I talk about body grief I talk about the insurmountable loss and sadness and sorrow of living in a body um and in a human body and that can mean anything it's body grief is universal so we can talk about I think a lot of people think of body grief just And they think like, oh, well, that's not me. And it's like, no, this is an everyone thing. If you have a body, you've experienced body grief. So that can mean puberty. That could mean breaking a bone. That could mean um, going through chronic illness. That could mean physical disability. That could mean acute illness. It could mean COVID, long COVID. It could mean menopause. Aging is a really big one. Um, Hair loss. It could, it could mean infertility. It could mean so many things. One thing that I, a term that I use and that I've coined a lot within body grief with Jane Mattingly is perceived body betrayal. And so oftentimes within the chronic illness community or within body image, weight loss, weight gain, eating disorders, whatever it might be, I hear people say, oh, my body's betraying me. 
this body was male. And I, I understand that feeling. Like I used to say that a lot too. My body's betraying me, whether it's the common cold or the flu or it's cancer or it's, you know, what I deal with with my chronic illness. And yes, that, that feeling is valid and it's not necessarily fact. Our bodies don't betray us. It's perceived body betrayal where our bodies do everything they can to find a homeostasis. And sometimes the symptoms of finding a homeostasis like are terrible. They suck. So like finding a homeostasis might be making that white blood cell count go up like crazy. Um, and the symptoms of that are going to be like coughing and sneezing and a high fever or sometimes like when you break a bone, the homeostasis of that is going to be a ton of inflammation and pain. Um, and so the symptoms, I'm sorry, the symptoms of that is going to be a lot of pain and that's going to feel like perceived body betrayal, um, or feel like body betrayal, but it's really perceived because it's, it's just, your body is just doing everything it can to protect you. And so it's really a perceived sense of body betrayal. And what really the importance of the semantics of that is that we have to be kind to our bodies. So we don't want to say like, oh, our bodies are betraying us. This is body grief. And that's why my book is called This is Body Grief. Our body is not betraying us. It's perceived body betrayal. We have to be kind to it no matter what it throws at us. And we're allowed to feel sad. We're allowed to feel all the phases of grief. And we still have to be kind to it. And that is really fucking hard. Yeah, I I can imagine. And also, as you were saying that, I was like, oh, of course, we're kind of hardwired to try and survive. You know, like our bodies want us to survive. Mm-hmm. Um, and this idea of it being perceived is so interesting. But obviously for you, this grief process came in kind of in your late 20s, right? Mm-hmm. So can you talk about the process? Like, what have you had to unlearn? Like, what have been the really hard learnings throughout? So many. Um, And when I think, like, I would say I was able to name the grief process Mm. in my late 20s, right? Where, like, I would say if I had the name, I could go back all the way to early years, right? Yeah. Like, you know, I went through puberty at nine. That brought really, if I had the words for body grief, I would be able to put that at you know, that was early stages, but I was finally able to put the words, um, on it, you know, in my late twenties where, when I was really able-bodied and I was building my business recovery, love and care, and I was doing events and advocacy events and things like that at, um, like Pilates studios and bar studios. And I was saying things like, you know, um, for body image. And I was saying things like work out for what your body can do, not what it looks like. And that was such an evolved concept for me mm-hmm. because in my eating disorder, you know, and before then I was a dancer and I was starving myself and I was using really maladaptive coping mechanisms. And so that, again, it was a really evolved concept for me. And I was like, work out for what your body can do, celebrate what your body can do rather than, you know, what it looks like and all these things. And then one day um, in bar class, in between my five jobs, because I was a 20-something who was going and getting her master's degree, and I thought I could do it all, like many, many, many people do within a capitalist society. 
And in my internalized ableism and internalized capitalism and all the things, little did I know what ableism even was. Um, mm. I was there, you know, tucking and squeezing and doing all the things at the bar. And I literally um, felt like my body was going to, well, I was collapsing and I started losing my sight. And from there, in like five months in between then, I did lose my sight. I had about like, I don't know, five, seven ER visits. And then I was diagnosed with a really rare um, neurological disorder called intracranial hypertension, also known as pseudotumor cerebri. And um, that was, you know, a spiral in itself. I had brain surgery. Then went to the Mayo Clinic here in the States, traveled, did a lot of medical travel, and then it was a downward spiral from there. And I was diagnosed with a rare genetic disorder called Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. And um, since then, have just had like a downward spiral of just like, that's, you know, like progressive um, decline in my mobility and in my neurological spine and brain and it's been really, really tough. And I've had to really unlearn so much because I was there, like literally I was getting spinal taps, which is a lumbar puncture of like an epidural, probably like, I don't know if like the size of your forearm that goes into your, your low back, like all the way into your spinal cord. And it basically takes out your um, spinal fluid. And I was like, literally, I would do that um, and it's not a fun thing to do. It's a very serious medical procedure. And then I'd go up to the hospital room while they like um, look at me and, and um, make sure I was okay for like a couple hours before they send me home. And I'd be answering emails and I'd be like, that's not okay. That's not normal. That's not something that's not a point of pride, but I would kind of look at it that way mm, like yeah yeah that's like capitalism like ingrained in you <laughs> so ingrained and I would be like then after my first brain surgery and then after my second brain surgery I'd be like well I'm not gonna have my pain meds until after I see this after I have this meeting and after I have this meeting and I that's not okay mm -hmm. like I would be in pain and that also mm -hmm. delays healing and then it's just the amount of things I had to unlearn is just wild. That also added on to my grief because I wasn't healing mm. my grief. Mm. So I was adding on to my trauma. And then I was also, I was also not healing that emotional piece, but my body was, wasn't catching up either because my body was declining. Yeah. So then here I am five years later writing my book and I'm like now unpacking a lot of this. And I'm like, oh my goodness. And I'm writing my book, listening to Taylor Swift. And I'm like bawling my eyes out for this young 27 year old. And I'm like, oh my God, I feel so bad for her. It's so sad. It's it's hard though, because I feel like a lot of our worth is based on like what we can produce, you know? Mm -hmm. Like some of the most valued members of society is because they, did this or they did that in like a productive sense? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think 
it's actually rather, it's really disgusting. I think now I'm like, I'm in this phase of life where I'm really disgusted by it. When I look at, when I look at it, I used to literally live, breathe, eat like that is who I was Mm. in every way, like every way. And I would say like, I still am like, if I, I have like OCD, um, my eating disorder kind of manifested its way into that work, work life, I would say almost where it's like, I couldn't, I couldn't starve myself anymore. I couldn't use those maladaptive behaviors in my eating disorder. So it's like, I put it all into like a work addiction almost hustle, hustle, hustle. And then once my body stopped doing I was like, well, then what now? So like, I, here I am at these events being like, do like celebrate what your body can do, not what it looks like. And then I was like, well, fuck now my body can't do what now? Like I'm, I'm not worthy. Who am I? And I wasn't even 30 and I was terrified, but I couldn't look at myself. So then I just hid myself in work. And was like, well, then I'll just create more. So I did. And part of me is really happy I did because I am here now and I'm writing a book. And part of me is really like, oh, my God, don't ever do that because (laughs) there was so much unhealed stuff there. Yeah. Yeah. How have you managed to find the balance now? I'm still finding it. Um... But honestly, like I've really leaned into it and a lot of it happened because I had no choice. Um, Like truly, my body made the choice for me. And you mentioned a concept earlier that was called ableism. I feel like it's important to talk about for those that kind of don't know what that is and how like it affects the lives of people such as yourself. Yeah, ableism is basically just like, I call them all the isms, right? And it's one of those isms that is rarely spoken about, um, but it is very much ingrained in us, just like capitalism, racism, sexism. And it really can't be spoken about on its own, really, um, without talking about all the others. But, you know, to just very quickly talk about it, it's the discrimination of people and disabled bodies. Um in a world that is just not built for disabled people, um, in a world that's built for people without disabilities. You know, it's, I think COVID really showed up and showed us that like, we're in a really ableist world. I think like that put a magnifying glass on it in a lot of ways, um, whether we wanna believe it or not, um, especially here in the States, especially in certain States, Um, but I mean, I know it here, especially like there's lots of places that I, having been an able-bodied person for the majority of my life, now that I am in a wheelchair, um, about like probably 90% of the day, I am treated vastly different. I, I'm also not allowed to go like half the places I wanted to go. Because, like, I can't get into the places. Yeah. Um, like, there's doors that I can't open. There's not ramps. There's not elevators. There's not smooth sidewalks. Um, I, I'm not welcome. That's so shocking. 
And that's just one, that's just one mm. piece, right? There's also ableism in regards to so much more. Like that is just like the physical piece. That is just like the tip of the iceberg. There is a big piece underneath. Yeah, yeah. Um, I have a friend that has cystic fibrosis and she talks about like workplace discrimination as well and how like disabled people really struggle, struggle to get hired in jobs because employers are just like, yes. no. Yes, yeah. And also just like the things people say, um, I do have to say like, that's one of the biggest pieces of ableism for me now, um, where I would say a lot of, I think I, now like I rub people the wrong way, maybe like well-intended family members and friends maybe like are like, oh, she's like a little spicy and rude. And it's like, no, I just actually think it's really unkind and rude the way you said that. Um, Cause you would never say that to like how rude, like when people talk down to you, people say like, um, they look at you and they're like, I had someone say like, oh, are you going to go out dancing tonight? And then like, I was a dancer and I still am a dancer and look at me. And then they like, they looked at me and like, like went like this and like made it like a cute little dance move with their hands and made like, and like infantilized me. There's a lot of infantilizing. And I really, I, I was so insulted. Um, that's so much infantilizing. And there's a lot of touching of the wheelchair. That's my body. Like, it's an extension of my body. Don't do that. Um, there's also, like, a lot of people with invisible disabilities and invisible illnesses that don't have mobility aids that, um, you know, that's a lot of ableism placed on them as well. And there's a lot of body grief there. Um, so, yeah, it's ableism is that there's a big piece too, you know, with travel and, yeah. and things like that. That's really hard. Um, you know, when people, I, I always joke, there was, I don't, I, you have to have a sense of humor with it too, but you know, I, I, I think it's hilarious, but like, I'll be at a doctor's office and, um, they'll be like, okay, if you just go over there and sit down. And then like the, the receptionist was like, Oh my God, I'm so sorry. And I was like, I'm already sitting. Um, but like, you know, you have to have a sense of humor, but like little things like that, that's not a big deal. Um, but you know, like, it's just ways of thinking about things and systems of oppression. Yeah, of course. And I can imagine there's like a lot of internalized ableism as well that people have that maybe you had before, you know, that, oh. that you have to contend with as well. Oh, yes. Every day. Mm. Every day. Like I should be able to do more of this. I should be able to, you know, make my bed. I should be able to wake, like I should be able to do more of this. I mean, God, I can't even begin to start like for instance, like brushing my teeth is harder. Um, doing basic tasks is harder. And it's interesting because I think people from the outside, like I know myself, I used to think, I always say this, when I was able-bodied, especially growing up, I just didn't know a lot about disabled people. And I thought disabilities were just purely people who are paralyzed. Like I, that's how privileged I was in my disability. I mean, am I able-bodied? um, life. I was so privileged in that. And I was in such like a bubble of that. 
And so I didn't know that like 80% of people in wheelchairs were ambulatory. Um, so that meant, means that like you can stand and walk. Um, I didn't know that actually having a wheelchair is like something to be celebrated and that like it gives you much freedom and independence. And mobility aids are like really awesome and give you freedom and independence. It's not something to like be like, oh, boo-hoo. And so from the outside, like I used to think that that was something that was sad. And so now for me, like the hard things are like when I can't reach the counter and like can't reach the spoons or like, you know, those are the, those are the times where I have a lot of internalized ableism. Yeah, I understand. And how do you kind of contend with, I think we live in like quite a time where everyone's very like body positivity. And I think that's quite gendered as well as women. Do you feel like we should aim to have a different relationship with our bodies? Yeah, I'm. here's the thing. In regards to body grief and body grief with Jane Mattingly, I look at it as like a spectrum as, mm-hmm. you know, body grief is this beautiful spectrum. It's cyclical. It's nonlinear. And I think body neutrality and positive body image and body trust live on that spectrum. Yeah. And so body grief is that. Mm-hmm. And so we dip our toe into body trust. We dip our toe into body neutrality. We dip our toe into those things. And we have the phases of body grief that I have seven phases of body grief within body grief with Jane Mattingly. And, you know, if depending on your privilege and depending on systems of oppression and depending on the work that you've done and where you are within your body grief cycle, um, then you can get to body acceptance and you can get to positive body image. But body neutrality is really, I think, a more realistic place for a lot of people to get to. Mm-hmm. And body trust is usually like this last little dip where we can get to at the end of our body grief stage. Um, but I think we don't necessarily end up anywhere. No, it kind of feels like a process where, you know, it's never linear. People, mm-hmm. their relationship changes all the time. I guess like your relationship with any other kind of external person would change over time. You know, it's the same with yourself, I see you. Yeah. Yeah, I just, I... I find that like we get stuck in here's one thing, here's another thing, here's these movements, here's these labels. And, you know, I guess they could argue, okay, well, this is another label. And it's like, this is just my version of looking at things. But I think it's, here's like a little bit more of saying like, here, here's a way for everyone to fit into this. Like everyone can find themselves on this spectrum. Like, you literally can be from any walk of life and to say like, I see myself on this spectrum and like, there's no expert in this. Like, yes, I'm like saying like, here's body grief. Here's my, my thoughts. Here's my research. But like, you can be the expert of your story. Yeah. Cause the, the person's going to know their own body best is like the owner of that body, you know? Correct. Yes. Makes a lot of sense. Um, mm-hmm. So you're you're married and we yes. spoke a bit about this before, but I was really interested in like how, I guess, body grief and disability intersects with like everyday life in the sense of like, how does it come into relationships and even yeah. sex? 
Yes. Oh my gosh. It's so wild. I mean, I just, I, one thing, so with my Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and, um, all of that, I also struggled with really terrible endometriosis and, um, I was hemorrhaging constantly. And so I had a hysterectomy, a total hysterectomy. Um, and it was the best decision of my life. Like, I'm so, 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 so happy that we did it. Turns out like it needed to happen. They found cancerous growths in there and, um, we weren't expecting to take out the ovaries, um, but they did because they found the endometriosis and some other things. And so I went through menopause, surgical menopause. Um, I'm pretty much done with it because they, yeah, yeah, I'm done with it. And that was like a wild, wild ride. And interabled relationships are like a wild ride in themselves, right? Especially when there's like body grief and trauma and like all, like I've had four. I've had 16 brain and spine surgeries in the last five years. Like Sean and I have only, we've been together for 10 years, but we've been married for two. So like talk about honeymoon phase. Like we haven't had one. <laughs> like we literally haven't had a honeymoon. So our honeymoon has been in the hospital. Um, and so it's been really hard. Like I, it's been really, really fucking hard. Um, that's all I can say. And our, our version of an interabled relationship has been hard because it's been a lot to go through. 16 surgeries plus a hysterectomy is hard. Um, especially when we were wanting kids, um, and we're, I'm only 32. And so it's hard. Um, and there is joy in it. There's joy in interabled relationships. There's joy in this. And there's, um, you know, marriage counseling is a must because there is a lot of differences in all of this, learning our attachment styles and learning like where we go when we're stressed and what we need. Um, I'm anxiously attached when I'm stressed. Sean is avoidantly attached when he's stressed. Not a good mix. Terrible mix. And not to be the most common mix. So, oh. yes. So, you know, like it's doable, mm -hmm. um, learning how to really, really communicate and not just like about the groceries and about all the things, but like really communicate our feelings and, um, getting like help from community and friends. And also one thing that has been just huge is like stripping ourselves of all of what we thought a marriage would be. Mm. And that has been harder for us than we realized. In what ways? We, you know, I think for us, like both of our parents were pretty more traditional than we thought. Like my parents were high school sweethearts. You know, my parents are really progressive in a lot of ways, but like high school sweethearts and they had the three kids and the house and the, all the things. Um, and his parents, you know, they got married and they have the kids and they, you know, both of them are still together, all the things. And that's wonderful. And I'm so happy for that. And that's not us. Like we're not going to have the kids and we've already broken the molds because the disability and it's going to look different. 
it just, it is. And so that might mean that friends are more a part of our lives than family at times. And that maybe I go on solo trips with sisters a little bit more and Sean needs a little bit more of a break at times and that's okay. And, um, you know, that nothing is necessarily going to be compared to normal because nothing is normal about this. Yeah. Um, another thing too is with intimacy Mm. after, you know, intimacy, I always talk about this, like with my Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, I was like, so something with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and EDS is it's a connective tissue disease. So it's on a spectrum. There's 14 different kinds. It looks so different in everyone. One thing for me, it was like, I was so, so, so hypermobile. I am very hypermobile. Um, and I was dislocating things a lot as a kid. Um, and it was never like really too much of an issue. Um, but I was always like a wonderful dancer because of it. And then, um, I was also like, you know, bendy. So it was always like really great, you know, for intimacy and all of these things. And then it all of a sudden, once I got sick, my EDS flared up and the gene mutation came out. And things started becoming a problem. And so the bendiness started becoming like clicks and dislocations and subluxations and cute, hot, sexy, bendy moves started becoming pops and dislocations. And I might literally have a seizure. Oh, God. And so, like, that's not so sexy. No, unfortunately. Um, no. And so there's, like, when Bendy isn't so hot anymore in the bedroom. And so there's that. I'm like, oh, wait, okay, wait, let me get my brace. Oh, wait, let me get my, okay, let me, oh, wait, let me, oh, let's get the pillow. Oh, wait, let me get my, let me get my pelvic, wait, oh, oh, oh. And it's like, okay, this then like, then then you're like, oh, maybe we just shouldn't. And then it's like, that's, yeah, it's like, oh, that's not fun anymore. Um, And then the hysterectomy comes along. And let me just tell you, in the fifth grade pamphlet, when you go over puberty and what happens with the female body, they do not tell you everything about menopause. (laughs) They do not. And our mothers are not telling us everything about menopause either. No, I feel like my mom was like, oh, it's just some hot flushes. Like, you'll be fine. It is not. <laughs> Don't scare me. But, no, okay, the hot flashes do suck. But for me, like, I, I was dealing with so much other stuff. I was just so happy to have my uterus out of yeah. me. It was, like, the best thing ever. And I can't be on hormone replacement therapy. So... A lot of people can, and I think that helps with a lot of these other things, but I cannot. So here I am, and I'm like, there's atrophy down there. There's like labial atrophy. And I'm like, what does that mean, right? Like the doctor's like the labial atrophy. And of course, it's like a male doctor. Yeah. So I'm just like, stop medical jargon at me, right? Yeah. So then I go on like TikTok and forums, and I'm like what that's when this means like this means that like things shrink this means that like you're you can I say the words yeah 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 
This means that like your clitoris and your labia shrinks. And this is like happens to the majority of women through menopause. If they're not on hormone replacement therapy. Oh my God. Yeah. I guess the body's just like, nope, no use for this anymore. Exactly. So it's like your the whole thing is like if you use it, if you don't use it, you'll lose it. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Of course. So I'm like, but also, can we stop? Can we stop like being afraid to talk to women about this? Because yeah, if you don't use it, you'll lose it. I'm sorry. You need to tell me exactly what you mean because I I, I don't know what that means, sir. Like I need you to tell me you need to use a vibrator on your clitoris. Because that is what that means. That's like actually what it's you're supposed to do. So to stop it from going into atrophy. Thinking. Yeah. Oh shit. So, oh my god. Yeah, that should be like a medical like recommendation, you know? Which I think it is for a lot of people, but like I think sometimes people are uncomfortable, like men, male doctors or whatever. Also it's to be about right and so I'm talking about this with Sean and like <laughs> like I'm not kidding you like there have been conversations where it's like I can't like it's like you know like when there's jokes like I can't find it and it's like yeah it's like no like literally it's going away oh my god it's literally going away and so like I'm not allowing this to happen like it will not go away I've had so much body grief with my fucking body I will not allow this to go away. You're not losing that one. Like the one source of pleasure. I will not lose my clip. I can't believe I'm talking about this. That's so funny. Oh my God, that's iconic. I will not. No, I love it. And you should lose. If you can hold on to it, I would. Oh my God, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> I, I will hold on to my clip like no one's business. <laughs> <laughs> That is the best thing anyone's ever said on this podcast. But I, I know I will do it, and it's like, but seriously, they should hand out vibrators. They should hand out pamphlets. They should hand out all of these things because it's like, why? It's just I'm dumbfounded. Mm, mm. Like, let me just. I want want you to make sure you put this on the podcast. My clit is still alive and well. Perfect. Um, but is that because you've listened to the medical advice? No, that they didn't give me medical advice. I listened to TikTok. Oh my god, TikTok saved your clit. That's like yes, <laughs> yes, yes, it did. <laughs> now let me be clear too. TikTok, it's like the OB guides on TikTok. Mm, oh, okay, okay. But you know, so it's not like random people on TikTok. It's like the OBGYNs on TikTok. Yeah, but you know what's so interesting? Like Gen Z now are like, that's what they're using for a search. What is it like a search forum, I guess? Like people are getting their information from TikTok. So maybe, you know, the women that are like in their early 20s now, by the time they're 50, they're going to know all this. Yes, that's what I'm saying. Millennials, once they go through menopause, which I'm a millennial. Yeah. Because we overshare like right now. The world is going to know everything about our vaginas. I can't. Oh, we, will, we will not be able to keep our fucking mouths shut. <laughs> just, this is a perfect example. My poor father. My poor father. 
Isn't that so sad? Like my husband's so okay with me sharing all of this, but like the first thing that comes into my mind is like, dad, you're not allowed to listen to this. Fine. I will put a disclaimer that your dad is bad. (laughs) He's my number one fan. Yeah. Hi, Jane's dad. I hope that was okay. (laughs) Um, Cool. So I want to talk about the book that you're writing um, because super exciting also like penguin like oh my gosh right and it's your first book right it's your debut yeah oh yeah smashed it um but can you give us a bit of an insight into I guess you already have but like the process and is there any kind of things that you can get us excited about so that we can all go pre-order it when it comes out oh my god yes oh god thank you so much I'm so so pumped Um, so basically it's just going to be, it's very much something like that. I've never read before. Um, there's nothing out like this, which is why I think there's so much like buzz about it and why Penguin was so excited about this because when I was in my body grief, I couldn't find anything like this. Um, cause there's nothing about it. So Basically, I will be sharing my body grief journey um, in phases of body grief. And I have my phases of body grief, seven phases. Um, And in those phases, there will be case studies from all different walks of life, um, multiple case studies from all different people sharing their expertise and their their versions of their body grief stories And then there will be um, basically ways in which you can work through your body grief. So it's like also like a workbook as well. Um, So it's like very much novel form as well as self-help, as well as like, oh my gosh, I see myself in this. Um, And there's also like some cool little pieces that I don't want to share yet. Um, But it's just going to be so beautiful. Um, but in the meantime, there's the newsletter, um, on Substack and then the podcast will be launched in like very soon. That's so exciting. Is there, is there any like one bit of advice that you could give to someone that's maybe like in the process of body grief right now? Like, what would you say? Allow yourself to grieve without judgment. Like Mm -hmm. there's no one right way to do it. Um, I think when it comes down to it, don't allow the toxic positivity or the toxic gratitude to slip in. Mm, What do you mean by toxic gratitude? Well, I have this, at least I have this. Brene Brown always says at least is the most unempathetic thing you could say to someone. Oh, that's so interesting. And people say it to me all the time. At least you have a roof over your head. At least it's not cancer. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, but I've had 16 brain surgeries and I'm 32. You know, yeah. like that's really unkind. That shuts someone down really quick. Yeah, yeah. I guess it's like them also like not sitting in the discomfort of like what you're, they're like, oh, find a way to make this better instantly, you know? Yeah, it makes them more comfortable. Yeah, you're right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, and yeah, go on. Yeah, I just think it's like maybe it's internalized. Mm-hmm. too. Then if you're like, oh, well, at least it's not cancer. I should just shut up. Or at least it's not this. Or, 
even if it is cancer, being like, at least I have a roof over my head. People have it much worse. It's like, yeah, it's always going to be worse somewhere else. And like, sit in your grief, allow it to happen. Like, it's okay. Yeah. Be sad. It, it, if you allow yourself to be sad, watch, watch the emotions pass like the wind or like the weather. It will like slowly dissipate. Yeah. And then, you know, dip your toe into something that allows you to feel a little bit happier that isn't maladaptive. And if it is maladaptive, maybe make it a little bit less maladaptive than harmful. Right? Yeah. What are like common maladaptive practices or what do people tend to do that you're like, this isn't a great idea? Drinking. Mm -hmm. Um, Like I think having a glass of wine is okay. You know, like drinking with girlfriends, drinking with friends, like that's all right. I think sometimes we overindulge and it becomes a problem. It numbs, it numbs, numbs, numbs. Um, that's a common one. Um, wellness is one that is like right up there. Obsession with obsession with wellness. Um, because people think that wellness is the antidote to illness and it's not. That needs to be on like a post of someone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I thought it was. Yeah, I mean, because it's so enticing. Like it, like logically, you think, oh, it makes sense if I just lean really far into this. I can forget about, you know, they're all ways to numb, I guess, the feelings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, oh, celery juice will definitely prevent this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's or like, or like, I went to to yoga for like three weeks in a row. Like, I will absolutely not catch this. Mm. You know, like mm. it's just, it feels, you feel f- safe and free in your body. So like you feel connected. So like, there's no way like you'll get Crohn's disease. Mm. Mm. Like that's just not how it works. Mm. Yeah, no, I understand. But obviously like taking care of your body's a great thing to do. It's just, it's good. Yes. And it's like, let's do it for feeling good. And like all the positive endorphins and like, I think wellness is a really great thing to do, but it's not an antidote to wellness. Yeah. It's, it's not like what you should, another way to numb yourself, you know? Yes. And it can be a little obsessive. Yeah. 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 hundred percent. Um, so we need to wrap it up, unfortunately, even though I'm having a stellar time with you, but the last question that I wanted to ask is what impression would you like to leave on the world? Oh my gosh, just to be kind to your body and to be honest, be eat, like have a life of ease. Mm. I don't know if that's possible in this lifetime for everyone to have a life of ease because I don't know if the world would be able to function with a life of ease. You know what I mean? Like, in a yeah, we would need to restructure everything for people to just like yeah. chill out. You know, we we're really not designed to work this much. Like, mm-hmm. but like, if we could just all have a little bit more ease in our life, I think we could have a little bit more kindness to our bodies and ourselves, and then to yeah. others. Hundred percent. And before we go, is there anything that you want to like? send people to like yeah anything that you want this space to just be like where can people find you as well yeah 
Um, you can find me at Jane Mattingly um, on Instagram and TikTok. Um, JaneMattingly.com is where all of my stuff is, including the AND initiative um, and my book and all the good things. Um, you'll find me there. Perfect. Well, listen, thank you so much for coming on. I've had a whale of a time and learned so much as well. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much again to Jane for being on the podcast with me. If you like this, please follow us on Instagram. You can find us at ImpressionablePod. That's at the word Impressionable and then P-O-D on the end. Obviously, I will link all of Jane's socials in the episode notes. And yeah, share with us on your social media. Just engage. Anything that you can do to share it will help us out. So hopefully this conversation will reach more ears. I hope you have a lovely week and I will see you next time. Thank you. Bye.